0: Well, tonight, uh, in 1 Peter 2, we're looking at covering just a couple verses. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. There's so much there, so let's read those together. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Hey, a lot in those two verses, huh? Well, last week we finished that section of uh, verses four through eight, and I talked about the relationship between the believer in God and the relationship between the unbeliever in God. And that's where Peter had left us off. If you look back up at verse 8, Peter's saying to the unbeliever, Jesus is a stumbling stone. He's a rock of offense. These people stumble because they disobey the word just as they were destined to do. So we see, uh, you know, these, it's really strong language here about the unbeliever, the one who goes to the grave rejecting Christ. Um, eh, maybe he doesn't have in mind those who are going to the grave rejecting Christ, but at least those in the moment right now who are rejecting Christ, they stumble over him because they disobey the Word. And that's a tragic reality for them. But now he's going back to focusing on the identity of God's people. So he talked about how we were living stones. That that was the verses 4 and 5 part of uh, the section from last week. We are living stones, we come to Him, we come to Jesus as living stones, and now we're finding out more about our identity. We're not just living stones, but we are, and I've got it up here on the board, we are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and we are, in fact, God's people, a people for God's own possession. And the big idea in these two verses tonight is when you become a Christian, you receive a radically new identity a radically new identity. So um, I want to start off tonight by talking about hermeneutics. Now that's a funny word. You've been hearing it some lately here, and you're going to be hearing it quite a bit in the next few weeks in this church for a variety of reasons. Um, The Sunday school class that's in here that's been going through Romans, they're taking a break and going to be doing a study on hermeneutics before picking back up in Romans 9. Uh, We have some issues that are related to hermeneutics tonight in our text. We have in 1 Corinthians here in just a few weeks some difficult hermeneutic issues in chapter 10. We'll be there in a couple weeks from Sunday. Um, We're just going to have to get familiar with this word hermeneutics and figure out where we are on, on this word. Who can give me a good basic definition of hermeneutics? Just real basic. Yeah, very good. Yeah, it's Scripture interpretation. It's, it's the way we interpret Scripture. And uh, what we have tonight in our text, verses 9 and 10, are a bunch of Old Testament citations. If you're looking at a New American Standard Bible, for instance, you'll see all caps where Peter is quoting the Old Testament and where it says a chosen race, a priesthood, a holy nation— Um, You see these words in all caps because he's drawing from an Old Testament text and applying it to the church today. He's actually taking monikers that were given to Israel, and he's applying them to the church. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because there are lots of things that were said about Israel in the Old Testament and uh, is this? Does this mean? Does this open the door for us to start grabbing anything that was applied to Israel and start a, and taking it and playing to the church? Well, we have to wrestle with this, okay? Because that's where some people land, and we have to figure out where we are on these things. Um, so let me just say a couple of things on that issue before we get into the text tonight. We understand as we approach the New Testament text that the apostles had obviously the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they had an inspired prerogative as they wrote their New Testament letters because the Spirit was in them working, bringing about what we have today. It was their prerogative to use the Old Testament text. However, the Spirit wanted them to use those texts. The apostles were able to do that. They had that office where they could write Scripture and do that. And we should go where they go in the text. So if Peter here is taking a title given to the old covenant people of God and applies it to the new covenant people of God, we go where Peter goes in the text. Inspired. It's from God. Let's do that. But we don't go any further, okay? So we don't stop short and say, well, I'm scared to go where the New Testament goes. Well, we go where the New Testament goes. But we also don't go beyond what is written. That's back in 1 Corinthians 4. We talked about that in the sermon series. Do not exceed what is written. So we want to be faithful to the text because it is sufficient as it is, isn't it? We want to be faithful to the text and go where it goes because it is sufficient in its current state. We don't need to add to it and bring in more connections that it doesn't make. It's sufficient as it is. And so let's go there, but let's not go any further. That's the big idea for this evening. And what Peter is doing in our text tonight as he takes those titles and applies them to the church is he's illustrating the greatness of the new covenant identity over and against what Israel had in the first covenant. He's magnifying our identity in Christ that Israel didn't have when they were living in the first covenant that God issued. All right, so thoughts on that before we get into the text, just hermeneutics and our approach to this. Also, hi Lizzie. How are you? How was California? Oh, join the club. Okay. Sometimes that depends on context, (laughs) but yes. Well, good. I'm glad that you were safe and had fun. Okay. Well, let's get into our text tonight. Let's talk about who you are as a Christian. And the first title we get, of course, is uh, this. Phrase chosen race. You are a chosen race in Christ. Isn't that exciting? Uh, There are a few places in the Old Testament where we see that God calls his people a chosen race. And of course, this made quite a bit of sense in Israel because they were and still are an ethnicity, right? He took Abraham's family, and out of Abraham, he made a nation out of one man. There was, there's truly a uh, Jewish ethnicity that exists, and in that sense, they really are a quote-unquote race as we think of it today. Um, but here we have it applied to the church. When you think of in the Old Testament where this language comes up, Deuteronomy 7 is a key place. Uh, in Deuteronomy 7, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, God's talking to Israel and He says, you know, through Moses, it's not because you were so great that I chose you. It's because you were insignificant. You were nothing. God made Israel a thing, didn't He? He just took Abraham and He made a nation. Um, So that's a really key chapter, but also Isaiah 43. And we're not going to spend time in Isaiah 43 tonight, but I want you to know about it. There are a lot of these themes found in Isaiah 43, verses 20, 21, 22, right in there. And there's kind of a motif of Isaiah 43 going on in Peter's words as he speaks to the church, calling them these great titles. Um, In Isaiah 43, God is talking to His people, saying how He's going to be delivering them from Babylon. He's going to be delivering them from the hand of evil Babylon. And if you remember, at the end of Peter's letter, just turn a page or two over to chapter 5, verse 13, the second to the last verse, Peter writes (laughs) to these believers and says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Now, Babylon didn't exist when Peter wrote this. It's likely that he had Rome in mind as a reference here for what Babylon was. And that's a general theme that Peter's employing here. You're being persecuted by Babylon the Jews being persecuted by Babylon. Well, now it's the Christians being persecuted from Rome. Remember, these people were driven out of Rome. And so, there's a a, a figurative picture that Peter's tying together here, and Isaiah 43 is a big part of that. And we'll talk, of course, more about that as we get to the end of the letter, um, where Peter brings up the word Babylon more specifically. But uh, he has this theme running through the whole letter. And These titles that he's bringing up, including the title chosen race, these were formerly titles for Israel only. They weren't applied to any other people. In the first covenant, there was no other people on the face of the earth that could be said to be a chosen race at all. It was Israel only, but now there's application to the church, which is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. He's making that application with that terminology. And some of your Bibles might say people instead of race, a chosen people. That's probably best for our understanding. The word race, of course, today is being used in really wild ways. Uh, The Greek word very could be translated uh, people. And it's really saying, look, you are a group of people who have a new identity because you've been chosen by God. You're a chosen people or a chosen race. And of course, this harkens back to the very first verse of the, of the letter, the opening statement of the letter, when Peter calls them chosen people or elect exiles. It's his theme running through these first two chapters that God is doing choosing. He's in the business of choosing. He chose his son, a choice cornerstone, and he has chosen these believers to be exiles. They are a chosen race. And then he goes on to say that they're a royal priesthood, not just a chosen people or a chosen race, but a royal priesthood. Um, very interesting combination of words, because when you think about the offices of the Old Testament, there were three main offices. What were they? Priest is one of them. Okay. Prophet, and prophet, priest, and king. And so this is kind of bringing in kingly a kingly concept with a priestly concept. You're a royal priesthood. You're kingly priests, it could say. Now, all of Israel was never um, a priesthood because Israel needed priests. Who who was the tribe that served as priests in Israel? Levites. And they were priests between Israel and God Himself, right? They were the ones uh, from Aaron's line and then you know, later on from Phineas's line, they would be chosen from that family to be the ones who would make the sacrifices and go into the holy of holies, the holiest place, make atonement, and be the mediator between Israel and God. But there was a sense in which all of Israel was a priestly nation in that they were ambassadors to the world, right? They were to be a light to the nations. They were to be the ones who were the mediators as a nation a holy nation to the other nations. And so, um, all of Israel never was a Levitical priesthood, but in a sense, all of Israel was a mediator between God and the world. They were to be a light to all the other nations. And God did make a promise in Isaiah 61. You can jot that down, too, if you're taking notes. In Isaiah 61, I believe it's verse 6, God talks about there will come a day when they will all be priests, There will be a, this is of course New Covenant language, when they will all serve as priests. And Peter here, of course, is seeing some fulfillment of that in calling the entire church a royal priesthood. He's saying that God, who is the capital K king, has selected you to be royalty, a royal priesthood. You belong to him. And as you think about his. This is a whole church or a group of churches in Asia Minor. So this not only included uh, the officials from churches or the men from churches, but this letter went out to all believers in all the churches in Asia Minor. And he's saying to all of them, you are all a priesthood. You're all a priesthood. And isn't that just really remarkable? When you think of the priesthood of all believers, even the children who believe, and this is in the sense that they need no one between them and God. They need no mediator except for Jesus Christ between them and God, because Jesus came and fulfilled the priesthood. There is no need for any earthly priest, and so even a child can have direct access to God like a priest and make spiritual sacrifices to God. Isn't that so, so amazing? A little five-year-old child is a part of this royal priesthood. So he's saying, you all are a priesthood. And as the church, we are the spiritual playing out of what this means, that we are all priests. So I want us to turn to some other texts and see this. Um, let's go to Hebrews 7 first. Turn back just a couple books to Hebrews chapter 7, and we'll start at verse 23. The first thing we want to see as we consider how the whole church is a royal priesthood is how the priesthood has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 3. And when someone reads starting from verse 23 of chapter 7 through chapter 8 verse 6. 7, 23 to 8, 6. Who can read that for us? Go ahead. Okay, let's pause just right there. Those three verses are so important. Starting at verse 24, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. So there is no cycle of dying and being replaced, dying and being replaced, all that. He's continually a priest. He continues on forever. And why does he continue on forever, verse 25? Because he always lives to do what? Intercede. This is why we don't need any earthly mediators anymore. Because Jesus lives forever, and what is He actively doing? What is Jesus' current ministry? He's interceding for you and me. And so we need no other priest. In fact, we could be said that we are priests because we have direct access to God Himself because of Jesus' completed work. All right, very important verses, but let's uh, keep going, Rex. 26 to 86. All right, so verse 6 there is just so rich. Christ has obtained a ministry much more excellent than the old. As the covenant He mediates is better. So you have to imagine this is in Peter's view as he's applying uh, these amazing titles to the church who are, were in the new covenant. Jesus began the new covenant with His blood. And so it's much better, much better than the old. Uh, Jesus has ended the Old Testament priesthood, and we've entered into this new covenant. We've entered into this new um, realm of existence as those who have direct access to God. And we see this reflected in Revelation. So let's go forward to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 to 7. This is, of course, the Apostle John, and look at the language he uses to describe the church. Who could read verses 4 to 7 for us? Go ahead. Sure. All right. Now, that one we didn't need for our cross-reference, but that's a good verse. You've got to have that one. So, uh, isn't that an amazing verse? But look in verse 6. What are we, what are we called in verse 6? Yeah. He has made us a kingdom and priests to his God. It's that song, um, Is He Worthy, that we sing. He has made us a kingdom and priests to God to reign with the Son, lifted right from Scripture there. We are a kingdom and we are a priesthood. That is our identity as Christians. Peter recognizes that. John recognizes that. The author of Hebrews, of course, sees that. It's an amazing thing. Um, And as we are kings and priests, We learned last week, if you go back to 1 Peter 2 with me, we learned last week that our priesthood is for spiritual service. Look back at verse 5, 1 Peter 2, 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. What's the purpose? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we have unlimited access to the holiest place, God Himself. We come directly to the throne of grace. We come directly to God because of the finished work of Christ, because we have been given the title as priests and kings. We're royal priests. We're priests with the crown, and we go directly to God. Isn't that an amazing thought? Uh, that as Israel was at, in the old covenant, they were to be Of course, they had Levitical priests, and then they were to be a light to the nations. Well, now Jesus has come and fulfilled that Levitical priesthood. We see that in Hebrews, and here we are as ambassadors of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. We are to make our plea with the world, and in the New Covenant, we are to get the gospel message out as a royal priesthood. Pretty cool stuff. Thoughts on the first two, chosen race or royal priesthood? Sound good? Sound good? (laughs) Now, the next one gets a little bit trickier here because now it says a holy nation. Holy nation. So, a people or a race, okay, we can make sense of that. Royal priesthood makes sense of that. Nation, what's up with that? Ah, So confusing, I had to sneeze. Uh, A holy nation. Well, let's see where this is... uh, brought up originally by going all the way back to Exodus. Okay, the last time we'll leave 1 Peter, let's go all the way back to the second book of the Bible, Exodus 19, where God presents this language to Israel at Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, and we'll start at verse 3. A very important chapter in your Bible, chapter 20, of course, is the Ten Commandments, but the event begins in chapter 19, and this is God entering into covenant with His first covenant people, Israel. Let's look at verses 3 to 9, Exodus 19, verses 3 to 9. Who can read that for us? Exodus 19, 3 to 9. Go ahead, Jim. Okay. Well, um, so much to see here, of course, but let's look at verse 6 again, um, where God is saying through Moses to Israel that they should be what? Pick out what they should be. Okay, a kingdom of priests even, right? So here, here again, we get the idea of a royal priesthood, a kingly priesthood, a kingdom of priests. And this is, again, the idea not of they're all going to be Levitical priests because not all of them were from the tribe of Levi. Not all of them were going to be a mediator for themselves. (laughs) Uh, They needed uh, a high priest, one high priest in Israel. But they were to be a light to the nations. They were going to be a kingdom of priests among all the nations of the earth. And what was the other thing in verse 6? A kingdom of priests and holy nations. All right, and that's where Peter's drawing that language. And uh, he says in verse 5, though, if, there's that word, if, in verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession, and you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So there, this was conditional, wasn't it? The first covenant was conditional. You could go to uh, Deuteronomy 27 to 29, 27 and 28, where it talks about blessings and cursings that come from the law. You obey the law, you're going to be blessed. Disobey the law, you're going to be cursed. That's the first covenant. That's the Mosaic covenant. And that's what the people were facing. And so God says, if you do this, you will be my treasured possession. And what did the people say? Oh, yeah, we'll do it. (laughs) Because that's what we would all say, right? Oh, oh, yeah, okay, then then we'll do it, Lord, sure yeah, that sounds great, Lord. What, what else would we, would we ever do? Well, we all know that Israel went on to fail over and over and over and over and over again, didn't they? They failed to continue in God's ways. And that has led to the point, I mean, there's so many details, but that has led to the point now where we are in a new covenant, where Jesus became a curse for us. Jesus was the curse of the law for us, even though He had only earned blessing from the law because He lived perfectly, He took on the curse for us. And all of our sin is eradicated in Christ, that debt set aside because God nailed it to the cross. And now we are in a new covenant, Christ fulfilling all these things, and the new covenant is comprised of all peoples in Christ. It's not just between God and Israel. But it's all peoples. Now, it is important to note, though, because we are talking about hermeneutics. We are talking about God um, through Peter taking terms, he, applying them to the church, that the New Covenant was promised to whom? Who was the New Covenant promised to? Who was the New Covenant promised to in Jeremiah? Yeah, Israel. Israel the nation of Israel. And Ezekiel, who was the new covenant promised to? Israel. They were writing to Jews, weren't they? Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And the Lord, Yahweh, through them was saying that you are going to be restored. Wasn't He saying this? If if the sun and the moon and the stars and all that could fall apart, then I will forsake this promise to you. God was making a new covenant promise to Israel, the nation of Israel. And what do we learn in Romans chapter 11, for example? Very clear that those of us who aren't Israel, how did we make it into the new covenant? We've been grafted in like a foreign branch, right? We've been brought along because we are a foreign branch. We weren't God's first covenant people. We weren't promised the new covenant in the same sense that Israel was. Now, of course, God always had in view that all believers in Christ, Jew or Gentile, are going to be saved. But through Jeremiah, through Ezekiel, through others who were issuing that New Covenant promise, it was to the nation of Israel. And as Gentiles, we were just this wild shoot. And God in His grace took us and He's grafted us in. And so we are a part of this New Covenant, all those who believe in Christ, Jew or Gentile. But there is the promise that all Israel later will be saved, won't they? That's the promise of the new covenant, is that Israel will be saved, because God has not forsaken his promise that he made to them, that he would restore them, that they will have the law written on their hearts, that they will speak to one another uh, God's words. That's a promise that was made to the nation of Israel. And just as Israel in the first covenant was set apart as a light to the nations, so now the new covenant people, but both Jew and Gentile in Christ, are a light to the nations as a holy nation. In this sense, not that we are, um, you know, Christian nation. Let's make a flag and let's take over the government because we're a holy nation. That's not the idea, um, but in the sense that we are God's people, the new covenant people, because we're in Christ, Jew or Gentile, and we are set apart to be holy. The gospel believing community is one holy nation, and the words that are used. To interesting, the words for race or people, back when we were talking about chosen race. And then here you have holy nation, and then you have, following that, a people for his own possession. These are actually three different words, the words for race, nation, and people found in the text tonight. Um, you've got the word for genus. You know how we classify, how we do taxonomy on, with animals and we classify them with their genus or plants or whatever. Um, the word ethnos is in here, where we get our word Ethnicity. And then there's another Greek word for people too that we don't really have a good English parallel for, but but genus, ethnicity, and then another word. I mean it's it's all these words that could be used to identify you as a human being. And it's all wrapped up in Christ now, if you're a Christian. In God's church, there aren't many different ethnicities. There aren't many different genuses or subspecies. In God's church people. There's no room for focusing on any type of earthly identification, whether that's skin pigment or cultural background or whatever it is, and lifting that up and saying, that goes above my Christian identity or that competes with my Christian identity or anything like that. There's just no room for that. But in God's church, we are one. We are one family, one nation, one kingdom, one priesthood, one race. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for His own possession. That's an amazing truth that's really needed today in all the race conversations that are taking place. Our focus shouldn't be on any of that um, worldly type of division, but totally on our unity in Christ. There's a, a man who lived in the first and early second century, a Roman historian. His name was Suetonius, and he wrote that punishment was afflicted on the Christians. He was writing about Nero, what Nero did. Punishment was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to new and mischievous superstition. But he called Christians a new class. And the word that he used was that word for genus. Just, they're a particular class of people. And we still are, aren't we? And you look at all the cultural debates that we're engaged in, the things that we should be unified on as we oppose the world around us, whether it be abortion or the uh, sexual revolution or whatever's going on out there, we should be unified as God's people, one class of people over and against the world around us because we are chosen exiles in this world. And so we are one voice, one people against the sinful world around us. Thoughts or questions on that before I go on to the next title? Elizabeth. Well, I think in those cases, um, when it comes to the Asian churches, a lot of them have to do with language barriers. I think that, yeah, well, one of the most difficult things is, like, black churches. Um, you know, that, that's definitely the case where I'm from. You know, I come from a town that has uh, railroad tracks that go through it, and there's def- that's the division. You've got the projects on the other side of the tracks, and you've got churches on the other side of the tracks that are just for black people, basically. I mean, it's not like that's their sign on the door. And then there are churches on this side of the tracks where black people don't go. It's like just for white people, and that's not their sign on the door. Uh, The church where I attended in uh, mid-Missouri, pretty much the whole time I was there, there was just one black person out of 150, 175 people who went there. She was an older older widowed, um, I believe. And... uh, why? We live in a fallen world, don't we? And it shouldn't be that way. It should not be that way. Well, and that's... Yeah. I mean, but let's, let's face it, in Utah, it is hard <laughs> to find lots of diversity except for Hispanic, and um, because what, Hispanic's probably 10% of the population, something like that, something like that, so um, yeah, I mean, I I don't know the answer if someone is just going to say, uh, look, I'm not going to go there because there aren't enough people who look like me, well, we're never going to, that's like people coming and saying, well, we're not going to go there because you guys don't have a youth group for our kids, well, that's because you're not staying. If we had three families that said that it would just stay, then we would actually start to have that kind of thing. Um, it's just the same exact thing. And yeah, it is. And if people are going to use that, that excuse, they're wrongheaded. They need to be corrected in their thinking. They may not even be Christians at all, in which case, why would you ever want to go to church in the first place? But I don't know. Andrew. <laughs> yeah <Right. laughs> yeah. Whatever you know. yeah yeah and in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the sledgehammer that shatters all that and when people continue to put any type of ethnicity or demographic thing in front and to, to cause that division or that awkwardness or that space you gotta question where they are on the gospel because the gospel shatters that stuff. Yeah, that's right. And and there are multiple places in the New Testament that talk about that, not on the specifically on the issue of uh, race, like we're dealing with today. But yes, the the gospel melts all that away. That should melt all that away in everybody's heart. Jim. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. Yep, that's right. Yes, we are, we are dual citizens for the time being, aren't we? Um, but yeah, our primary citizenship is in heaven, absolutely. And that leads us to our final term, a people <clears throat> for His own possession, for God's own possession. Uh, what Peter does here is quotes from a minor prophet. Which minor prophet is quoting from in verse uh, 10? Hosea, did you cheat? No? You just knew? Really? <laughs> That's a very tough one. It's an extremely difficult one. That's like a level 9.5 out of 10. Good job. Okay. So, he, uh, he goes on to say, Once you were not a people, verse 10, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, when he says, You were once not a people, this is uh, a reference back to Hosea and one of the children that Hosea had with Gomer, the son Lo-Ami. <laughs> or, I'm pronouncing it totally wrong from the Hebrew, I'm sure. Lo-Ami, I don't know. But, uh, at that time, God was illustrating through Hosea's life that Israel's relationship with Yahweh was severed because of their rebellion against God, that they are not a people. That's, that was God's declaration over Israel. You're not a people because of their sin, uh, their breaking of the covenant. And they no longer experienced Yahweh as Savior at that time in Hosea's day because they had rebelled against God. And they were without mercy, too. Going back to the original context of what Peter's quoting here, that this was spoken of Israel, that they were not a people, and they were without mercy, the second half of that verse. And uh, we don't have time to go there. You can jot down if you're taking notes. Hosea 2.21, in Hosea the end of chapter 2, God says, you're without mercy now, but there will be a day when you'll be restored, speaking to Israel. And you will receive mercy. God speaking to his covenant people, the nation, saying, You're without mercy now, but I will restore you and have your mercy or return mercy to you. And this is the same passage that Paul quotes in Romans 9, this uh, Hosea chapter 2 passage. When Paul says, uh, God says, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, that's taken from Hosea chapter 2, verses 21 and following. And what Peter's doing here is not reinterpreting Hosea, but he's extracting the principle of God's mercy as God promised to return mercy to Israel in their future restoration. He's taking that principle of God showing mercy to a people who are without mercy and applying it to the church that is made up of both Jew and Gentile in the current age. So in Hosea, there's this promise as God is giving them judgment up front, because of their rebellion, and saying, I'm withholding mercy from you right now. But in the future, I'm going to restore you and bring mercy back to you. And that hasn't happened yet to the nation of Israel. That's still future. Peter's applying it to the here and now, not reinterpreting the verse, but applying the same principle from the same God who shows mercy to His church, the new covenant people. And think of this reality for the recipients of this letter they, of course, were lost and dead in sin. They were without hope. They were without God in the world. But now they are a chosen, royal, holy people because of God's mercy. Because of the mercy God has shown them, the compassion God has shown them, they are in the new covenant. They are the church. And the Lord had selected them to be in His kingdom, to be His priests, to be in His family. And they have... Outcast by the world. If they looked around at their human relationships, they didn't find any mercy there either, did they? Uh, they didn't find a resting place for being a people in the world because they've been pushed out. Yet, with God, they are a people. They were once not a people, and now they are. They didn't have mercy, they didn't have compassion, and now they do in the gospel. So, they are a people for God's own possession. They are God's people, a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation. A people for God's own possession. And the purpose of all this is found in the last half of verse 9. Why did God do all this in their lives and in your life, Christian? Why did God do this? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That's it. Why did God save you? that you would glorify Him, that you would proclaim His excellencies of the God who called you. Let's talk about His calling for a moment. His calling is the basis for our salvation. If God wouldn't have called us, we wouldn't be saved, right? If it weren't for God's calling, we wouldn't be saved. We love because He first loved us. We were in darkness. That's what the text says. That means unable to see. We didn't know which way to go, And we didn't want to go God's way. That's what the Bible says about our heart. We we couldn't see which way to go. We didn't want to go God's way anyway. We couldn't please Him. We were unable to please God. And yet He called us into His light. Powerfully and effectively, He called us. It was both powerful and effective. And we are now in His light, not just to a generic light. He didn't call us out of a generic darkness into a generic light. He called us out of the darkness of sin because of our depraved state that we were born into and we chose for ourselves. We just kept plunging deeper into, and He brought us out into His light. We now have relationship with God. We have access to God. We have the light of God, and we are light. The New Testament calls us light, capital L, light. And now in His light, Christians are able to proclaim His excellencies, That is what we are able to do and we are called to do, to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you. So, what does it mean to proclaim? Well, of course, it does mean praising with uh, our lips, right? That's a basic definition of proclaim. We are to praise God. We are to tell of God's amazing works in our heart and what He's done in the world, to tell of the gospel. But more importantly, we are to obey from our hearts. How do we proclaim the excellencies of God? Well, you live out your identity in Christ. You live out being a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. Living in light of these covenantal titles, these are all titles that are only given to God's covenant people. In the first covenant, they were given to the nation of Israel. And now in the new covenant, they're given to the church. You have a covenant, you have a list of covenant titles given to you from God. Now, to proclaim His excellencies means to go out and live from the heart in light of that identity that you have in Christ. That's how you proclaim the excellencies of God, by living out from an obedient heart this identity that God has given you with a view saturated with the gospel. So, a lot there in verses 9 and 10, always more to say, but uh, hopefully that helps us to grasp some of those things questions or thoughts as we finish up even outside of first peter cuz we have a couple minutes here even outside of the bible we can talk about baseball So, they spoke in tongues. <laughs> yeah. Um, you think about the ways some churches uh, divide needlessly. Um, this isn't related really to what you said, Char. It just made me think of it. Um, and I don't know how many churches still do this, but there there was at least a time where a lot of churches started doing like traditional and contemporary services. And do you guys know if that's still popular? I haven't heard a lot about it lately, but... That's just one of those things that it's like, a why can't a church just be a church? <laughs> why can't they just figure it out? <laughs> like, why? Do, okay. Yeah, well, you, you go to their website and it says, you know, well, you look to see what time it starts. Well, traditional service, and that's always the early one, you know, traditional service is like 7.30, <laughs> and contemporary service later, it's just like, oh, man, that is, what kind of message does that send? Um, yeah. And dress more formal and it'll probably be a longer service. You can do three contemporary services in the time it takes for one traditional service. So, Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like, well, let's just take divide t- device. Like, what on earth is that? No, they don't. No, they don't. They don't have a traditional contemporary. Yeah. <clears throat> So electric cars And vice versa. And vice versa, yeah. But it's <laughs> yeah. So race, class, age, whatever. Again, Yes. Yeah, can you imagine uh, a sermon being preached on that text that we just went through tonight at one of those churches? You are one unified holy nation, one royal priesthood, and the contemporary service is going to start in about 15 minutes, so we need to wrap up and get out of here, you know? It's like, it, there's just a big disconnect there for me. Um, the unity is lacking. Was it traditional or contemporary that you went into? Which were you wearing sandals or oxfords? <laughs> <laughs> And, that, and it really, I mean, what, what does that say to the world? It says to those around us um, that, yeah, just hang on to your whatever preferences, customs you have, uh, we'll just cater to it, um, which is really the exact same thing when it comes to race and everything else. It's just whatever you're most comfortable with, just stick, stick with it. And that's really not the standard is what does that say to the world? It's what does God think of this? right? Our judge's perspective, what is he thinking of this? He sees us doing this. We, we would rather hold on to our customs and preferences and divide a local church rather than set them aside for the sake of unity in the fellowship. Jim? Oh, yes. Those can get weird in a hurry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for bringing up a positive example to end with. That's good. Because we have experienced those times when it has been the way it should be. And um, the way that that happens is by having a robust love for God above all else and a robust biblical theology. It's really those, those things. When you prioritize just what Scripture has to say over and against what I feel or what I think, and just a love for God and a love for God's people over and against a love for self, then everything will work out. But often we, we can get led astray on those things. Rex. A deaconess and a cowboy church. That sounds like you could just, that could be dangerous. (laughs) You show up and there's going to be 50. (laughs) Where'd all those people go? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that'll be, yeah, that'll be an experience for you, yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting, okay. Well, yeah, if that happens, I, I want a thorough report. that would be ex- interesting, so. Okay, well, why don't I pray for us, and then we'll dismiss. Lord, we thank you so much for your kindness toward us and the fact that we are unified in Christ, that there's nothing that can divide us, nothing can separate us from the love of God because we are in Christ and we are one unified race and priesthood and nation and people. We thank you so much for what you've done by creating this new covenant in which we can know you, our maker, and enjoy you forever and bring glory to you in this life. And we ask you to show us how to do that more and more this week. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.